Jesus presents first the multitudes and then with his disciples privately a series of parables. Parables, as we discussed, are ways of teaching that Jesus has implemented and it's in accordance with the Word of God. As we heard this morning out of Psalm 78, where the psalmist opens with these words, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which you have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. So the Lord intended that parables be used and Jesus implemented that which God had intended in the teaching of those who were his disciples. The writer of Proverbs also speaks of these very things. In the very first proverb we read these words that the the Proverbs were given by God for this purpose, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And so it's important for us to understand that he spoke to those who would hear what he had to say in this fashion, and some would understand, but most would not. But it was intended by God to be accomplished in that fashion, because even in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, as Jesus had quoted, there are those who will indeed not understand because they will have purposely closed their own eyes. They would not hear the words of these parables and understand the meaning of them because they blocked their own ears. It's not that they could not. They could have if they would have. And that's the point of the parable. There is either a revelation to those who are willing to hear or a concealment for those who will not hear. And so the truth that Jesus has conveyed to his disciples, to all who would open their ears and their eyes to the truth, would indeed be understandable because he has made it so. And in the process of teaching all the multitude and his own disciples privately, remember at the middle of chapter 13 where we were last time, Jesus asked his own disciples, the followers, the twelve in particular, do you understand these things? And they all said, yes, we do, Lord. He had only given specific detail in terms of what those parables meant with regard to two of those parables. The remainder of them, he's left it up to them and us to understand based on what he already gave them for interpretation of those two proverbs that he, or parables that he had spoken about. Well, so Jesus ended the teaching in parables And Matthew will continue now in a transitional sort of way to move from where Jesus had been teaching in the region of Galilee, primarily. He had also taught in Judea, but he's been in Galilee for the better part of about a year and maybe a year and a half of his teaching time, primarily centered around the city of Capernaum. If you look at this archway, it would be equivalent to where the top of this arch uh, begins to bend toward the center. That's the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. This open area is what you would see as the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was spending most of his time up in that northeast region, or northwest region rather, of the Sea region, that whole region in Israel known as Galilee. 
He had sent his disciples, 12 of them, throughout all the various villages in Galilee to proclaim the truth that he was proclaiming to them. And he himself had traveled through much of that region. In fact, he was drawing so many people, people from as far away as Syria to the northeast and what is now known as Lebanon, the area of Tyre and Sidon, north of that region where his home base was of Capernaum, north of that lies Lebanon today, still have the city of Tyre there. It's where Jesus would be drawing people from that area. He also drew people from the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, that area known as the Decapolis. The Decapolis was an area of 12 or 10, rather, Greek cities that were primarily Gentile occupied, but many Jews lived there. And all of that region, and also from Judea, were coming to the area where he was teaching in Capernaum. Great distances were being traveled by them to hear this man's words. And now, Matthew is giving to us this transition from that popular ministry that Jesus had been doing so that all the masses of people everywhere around were coming to him we're going to see a transition from this point where he now focuses primarily on his disciples, just the twelve in particular, and a few others who were following with him for the remainder of his time before he moves southward, ultimately to Jerusalem, where he will end up being crucified. So that's the way that things have been progressing in Matthew's account here. He's basically done teaching the great multitudes, and he's now beginning to focus on a much closer circle. Before he does that, Matthew tells us some other things. Remember, though he was performing all of those wonderful miracles and speaking all of those wonderful words of the kingdom, and the people who were hearing him were gladly hearing him because he spoke with an authority that no man had ever spoken before, and yet the Pharisees and the scribes rejected him. They hated Jesus. They hated what he was doing. They hated what he was accomplishing with the people. They disdained this one who made himself to be like no other man, even calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath. That offended them. He made enemies as well as many, many followers. And those enemies were growing. And Matthew is now talking about after having spoken of those Pharisees and scribes as the enemies of Jesus' work, he's now going to be focusing on others who will also be considered those who reject this one that we know as Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Chapter 13 ends with a very short account of another group that offended or were offended by Jesus. And we'll read from verse 53 of chapter 13. Where Matthew tells us this. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. And when he had come to his own country, that is the city from which he was originally born and raised, Nazareth, his own country or community, he taught them in their synagogue. 
so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? The people of Nazareth gathered together in the synagogue on the Sabbath day as they would always be doing. That was their custom. And Jesus was invited to speak. And as he's speaking, they're also hearing these wonderful words of the Savior. And as he's speaking those words, they recognize the fact that nobody's ever taught like this. This is an amazing individual. But wait a minute. We know him. He was born and raised here in Nazareth. How is it possible that he could have such words of wisdom? How is it possible that all those miracles that we've heard about and even seen some of, how is it possible that he is doing these things? Is he not just a carpenter's son? Look, we know his family, Mary, his mother is here. His brothers, James and Joseph and Jude and Simon are all here, and his sisters too. How is it that this one that we all are so familiar with can be doing such great and marvelous things. They could not accept it. Why? Why could they not? I suggest a couple of possibilities to you. The first is, as we have said, familiarity. They knew him. They knew Jesus, the one who was born and raised in Nazareth, the one who grew up in a carpenter's home, he probably learned his trade. In, in, as a matter of fact, Mark will tell us that it was there referring to Jesus as a carpenter that indicates to us that Jesus had taken upon himself in his earlier days that same trade as Joseph. They recognize that he's the son of Mary. Notice that Joseph isn't mentioned in this context. Now, it could be that Joseph had already passed away. But that's what most people believe, and I accept that as being likely. But Mary is still very much alive and still living in Nazareth, and so is all of her children. Now, for some, that comes as a bit of a surprise that we would refer to James and Jude and Simon and Joseph as the children of Mary, but they were children of Mary. And that flies in the face of certain doctrines, yes, I know, but it's basically the only understanding that you can derive from a true understanding of the written Word of God. This is what the Bible says. Don't worry about what other people say. Mary is not a perpetual virgin. She needed a Savior just like all of us. Every one of us is just like Mary in that respect. We needed a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. He came to save Mary just as much as He came to save you and me. Mary was in the upper room after the resurrection of Jesus waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Along with the other disciples, there were 120 in an upper room when the Holy Spirit fell on that group of individuals and Mary was among them. Mary herself said that God is her Savior. She's not co-regent with Jesus Christ. When we pray for the Lord to intercede on our behalf, we don't pray to Mary to do that intercession. We pray to Jesus because it is Jesus who is our intercessor. 
We don't pray to Joseph to intercede on our behalf or any of the other saints. We don't need to do so. We have Jesus as our intercessor, our advocate. And in fact, we have the Holy Spirit if we are born again. And I believe that everyone who is here in this room should know whether you are born again or not. And if you are born again, then you have the Holy Spirit within you. And guess what? The Spirit of God also intercedes on your behalf. When you pray, let the Spirit of God pray through you and let the Spirit of God intercede on your behalf to meet the needs that you may have. So Mary doesn't do that. She doesn't accomplish anything other than the fact that she gave birth to our Savior. Now that doesn't lessen Mary in any sense of that word. She is highly esteemed among women, but not above women. So that's what I wanted to make sure that we all understand as we move forward in this context. This is her family, her earthly family. And everybody from Nazareth knew them well and knew Jesus. And they knew that, well, Nazareth didn't have a school of learning. They didn't have anybody that was there that was like Gamaliel in Jerusalem, able to teach in a school of learning of the Word of God. How could this man have gotten such amazing ability and wisdom if he was born and raised in Nazareth? Where did it come from? They did not understand it. And in their inability to understand, they became unable to receive. They rejected him because they were familiar with him. There's a phrase that perhaps some of you know. It's a perhaps a bit of a proverb, it goes something like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. And it certainly was a case with the people residing in Nazareth in that day. The word that Matthew uses in the original language when it says they were astonished is a Greek word, scandalizo. Scandalizo is where we get our word scandalize. They were scandalized. They were offended. They didn't understand they didn't want to understand. They just remembered who he was, and instead of who he, he is and trying to tell them who he is, they rejected all of that, and they only focused on this one fact. This is just Jesus, the carpenter's son. Can't be any more than that. And there's a lot of people in the world today who limit their understanding of who Jesus is in the same fashion. Some will say, oh, he was a good teacher. But that's as far as they're willing to go. Some would say, oh, he was a prophet. But that's as far as they're willing to go. They'd close their eyes to any other truth that may be presented to them. Why? Because they have preconceived ideas, preconceived understanding, preconceived notions of who this one is. But the Bible breaks all of that. The Bible gives us so much more information about this one who came like a man, in human form, putting upon himself flesh so that he could relate to us as human beings. And everything that we suffer, everything that we have to go through in our life, the Bible tells us he also had to suffer. In one way or another, Jesus lived out his life and has experienced all of the kinds of things that we also experience in our lives. All the temptations, all the struggles, but he did so without sin. 
That's the key element. Jesus was able, because he was the son of God, not of Joseph. Yes, he's the fleshly son of Mary, but he's the eternal son of God. And that makes all the difference in the world as to who it is that we look to when we read these words. They could not come to that conclusion. Their eyes were blinded because of preconceived notion. They think they know everything there is to know about Jesus because of that familiarity. He was a good carpenter. He was a faithful son to his mother. Perhaps he took it upon himself to help her after Joseph had died for the time remaining before he ended up going south to Jerusalem to begin his ministry. James, Jude, Jonas, Simon, none of them believed. Mary knew. But Mary wasn't able to convey to them all that she knew because they would not listen. After all, they lived in the same house. They were familiar with him. Not only the neighbors, but his own brothers and sisters. We're not told how many sisters that he had. We know it has to be at least two because the word is pluralized. But it was a large family. And the whole community was familiar with him. Do you see what is being conveyed here? Matthew is saying that not only did the Pharisees and the scribes reject him, but those who were closest to him also had no way of making that connection of the dots because of their unbelief. And that's what he tells us in the ensuing verses. It says in verse 57, So they were offended at him. Again, scandalizo. They were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. That prophet prophet is Jesus. And he's not without honor except there, in his own house, his own family, his own neighborhood. And then, sadly, in verse 58, Matthew ends the chapter with, Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. They rejected Jesus. And in their rejection, they could not believe what he was telling them about himself. I'm reminded in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel, around chapter 5, I believe it is, where Samuel is facing a challenge that he didn't want to have to face. The people grew tired of him being their judge and they complained and said, we want a king like all the other nations around us. Samuel didn't want to accommodate that request, but they pressed him and continued to force him to make that decision to arrange for such a thing as this. So Samuel goes to the Lord and says, Lord, they want a king. Instead of you, they're looking for some other Man to reign over them. They're making this demand, Lord, what am I to do? And God's answer to Samuel was this. Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. Do you think it pleases God to be rejected? 
No, it pains him greatly. I'm sure it does. I hope that you understand that that is the impression the Word of God gives us. And it is so with Jesus as he has to deal with his closest relatives as well, rejecting him. James and Jude and the other brothers did not accept him. They thought he was lunatic. They tried to get him away from the crowds because they were so concerned about what he was doing in the teachings that he was giving. Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus, wait a minute, you can't be saying that. That's just simply wrong, Jesus. You're our older brother. You're not deity. But he is. Again, people have certain preconceived ideas about who Jesus is. Do you believe that Jesus is God? The second person of the Trinity? Do you believe that he died and was risen again? Do you believe that he did that for forgiveness of all your sins so that you could live a life of eternity in the presence of a holy God, receiving his own righteousness upon you in place of your sinfulness that he took upon himself? Do you believe all of these things about Jesus Christ or do you think he's just another good teacher and prophet of God that lived his life and died foolishly at the hands of other men? as so many of the other prophets did. Is that all? God help you if that's all you think of Jesus. Jesus, when he was walking with his disciples one day, said, Who do men say that I am? And the answer came from probably Peter and others. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you're Elijah, this prophet or that prophet. And then Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? In fact, he said, who he was in that question. He said, and who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? He tells them, I am the Son of Man. What does that mean? It goes back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel saw a vision of the Almighty God seated on his throne, and one like the Son of Man standing before the throne of God. And that's Jesus. Jesus identified himself as that Son of Man. Who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Peter miraculously spoke out. And I believe, as Jesus said to Peter later, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. Because Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, For man has not revealed this unto you, but my Father in heaven. Do you believe this? Or is he just another man who died a terrible death, crucified by Roman soldiers? Do you believe the stories of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they took his body, that somehow... He didn't really die, but only swooned. And when they put him into that tomb, he was somehow awakened, which is really quite foolish because the tomb was closed and very little air could have been available to, 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 to revive a dead man anyway. But God did more than just revive a dead man. God resurrected a Savior. And the tomb is empty. And because that tomb is empty, we come here into a place like this 
and we declare to all who will hear and who will watch with their eyes what the Word of God says and understand with their eyes and ears and hearts that this is indeed the Savior of the world, that He was raised from the dead, and He did it for you. More than a man. Far more. But he did not do many mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. It's not that he couldn't. He didn't. Because they didn't have a need for him to do great and mighty things on their behalf. Jesus won't go to anybody to say, I want you to get saved, so it's time for you to turn now and come to me. That's not how Jesus operates. He basically makes an offer. It's a gift. It's free. It's available to all. But it's a choice that needs to be made by all. Either you accept that what He's done is indeed sufficient to bring you to that place where you can stand before a holy God and say, I am your son. I am your daughter. Or you can go before God in your own merit, strength, and intellect and say, Hey, God, how you doing, bud? Don't you remember me? I went to church every once in a while. And I gave quite a bit of money to the church, as a matter of fact. Remember that one time I gave $10? And, and by the way, I led a pretty good life. I didn't really sin much. Will that make him change the verdict? No, dear friend. The choice needs to be made while we yet have breath. And the choice is one or two, not three options. It's either you believe or you remain in your unbelief. They remained in their unbelief and they did not see much miracle taking place. Although all around that region he was doing many miracles. There in his home hometown very little was done. All because of unbelief. That unbelief came through rejection of who he is. Because of familiarity. So the Pharisees and scribes rejected him. His own family was rejecting him. The neighbors were rejecting him. And now in chapter 14, we'll continue reading in that portion of Scripture where we find another rejection, not only of Jesus, but of Jesus' messengers. Read on with me in chapter 14, verse 1, where it says, At that time Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, remember, Jesus had been doing many, many wonderful works, and Herod the Tetrarch, whose name is Antipas, and I'm going to go into a little bit of detail about this particular Herod to give you some information that perhaps might be more confusing than helpful, but I'm going to do it anyway, because there are several Herods in the Word of God, and I want you to understand which Herod this was. But before I do that, take note of the fact that this Herod has heard of Jesus 
doing remarkable things throughout his territory because he was, as a tetrarch, ruler over that region of Galilee and also of Perea on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But he had heard these stories and he thought perhaps this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why was he thinking that? Well, Mark is going, Matthew is going to give us the backstory of that, which I'll go into detail, hopefully, before the end of this time together. But he had a guilty conscience. John the Baptist, you may remember, the last time we saw him was in chapter 10 of this great gospel record, where John had sent his disciples to Jesus, asking the question, are you the one that we should be waiting for? John at that time was in prison, and he had been put into prison by this Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas was a son of another Herod that you are more familiar with, perhaps because of the birth of Christ story. It was that Herod, Herod the Great, who was ruler over all of then that region, including Perea on the east, Syria and Assyria, that region as far north as uh, the uh, present area of northern Iraq today. He had a great region that he was given the responsibility to reign over. He was considered to be a king, but not in the true sense of the word. He was a puppet king. After all, he was only appointed the king over that region by the Roman government. That's where the true power was. And they dictated to Herod the Great what must be done. Herod the Great was not a Jew, at least not a full, complete, full-blooded Jew. He was mostly known as an Edomian, which was a mixture of the Edomites and several other of the races of men that were in that region in other words, he was actually a relative of the Jews through his blood relationship by Esau, the brother of Jacob, who was the father of the nation of Israel. But Esau, Jacob's brother, was not a follower of God, and he established his own kingdom to the east in what is now known as Jordan and into the area of northern Saudi Arabia. Well, Herod ruled over all of those people. He was an Edomian, appointed by Rome. The Jews hated him. But he engaged in great construction projects. It was his doing that allowed for the building of the temple that existed in Jesus' day. A great structure. And around 4 B.C., we're told, and then his sons took over that region that he was given by the authority of Rome. But they broke it up into four territories. And so the name Herod the Tetrarch is a reference to the fact that this Herod only had reign over one-fourth of the original area that Herod the Great had once had. But he's a son of Herod the Great, and his name is Antipas. He had several other brothers. Aristobulus was one of those. Philip, actually there were two Philips in his family as half-brothers. There were a few others as well that are known to us in the Word of God. 
But Aristobulus was one of those that stands out for this one reason. Aristobulus had a daughter. Her name was Herodias. So Herodias is Herod Great's granddaughter. You with me so far? Well, Herodias married one of Aristobulus's and Antipas's brothers, half-brothers, named Philip. And Philip lived as a free man in Rome, and he brought Herodias to Rome with him, and they lived there for however many years that they were together. Didn't last all that long. Because Herod Antipas, once he took the throne, and he took the throne at the age of 17, he eventually went to Rome to seek the Caesar's blessing to allow him to be called a king. But before he did that, he married a woman who was born to a king of Perea. We're not given her name, but she's a princess. Probably an arranged marriage. Herod Antipas took the throne after his father's death at the age of 17, married this woman, probably to arrange for peace between his kingdom in that region of Perea on, the, on that si- uh, side of the uh, Galilean Sea and this other king. Actually, his name, the king, was Aretas, and he was a king of the uh, territory of, in the Arabah called the Nabatea. So all of that to say that there was an arranged marriage. Herod Antipas didn't really care for that first wife, and when he went to visit his brother Philip in Rome, He hooked up with Herodias, his brother's wife, his niece. He took her back to Galilee and married her. Incestual relationship, the law does not allow it. And adultery, because Philip was still alive, he married Philip's wife. He sent his other wife back to her father. That kind of angered Aretas. And he fought Herod Agrippa in a great battle that he won, kind of in retaliation for what Antipas had done to his daughter. But now Herod Antipas has a wife. Her name is Herodias. She's his niece. She's his sister-in-law, and she's got a daughter by her first husband, and her name is Salome. Now, Salome, we only know her name by a Greek, or rather a Jewish historian named Josephus, who records all of this information about the Herods in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. So it's well-documented historic data that we're talking about here. Kind of a filling in of the gaps, if you will. Because now Herod Antipas is asking the question, who is this man, Jesus, that I'm hearing about? He had apparently just come back from that war that he lost, and now his people that are closest to him are telling him about this man named Jesus who is doing miraculous things in his territory. And Herod has just murdered John the Baptist and wondering maybe this might be John the Baptist raised from the dead because he 
He's coming back to haunt me. That's the impression that he gets. Superstitious, yes. Wrong, absolutely. But that was what he believed. Now Mark tells us the same story in a slightly different way, but Matthew gives us enough detail, and I won't bore you with the information that Mark gives you, but read Mark's account of this in chapter 6 of that gospel record at your leisure. But here in chapter 14, Matthew tells us the remainder of the story. He says in verse 3, For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. See, it's right here in the Word of God as well as in Josephus' account. It says in verse 4, Because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. He was living in sin. Well, he wasn't a full-blooded Jew, and it made no difference to him whether the Jews said that that's not lawful. As far as he was concerned, I'm going to do what I want because I am the king. Well, he wasn't really a king, but he's called that. I'm reminded of the power that Jezebel had over Ahab in the Old Testament record in 1 Kings, 2 Kings. Jezebel was Ahab's wife, and poor little Ahab was very sad one day because he couldn't get his way with regard to some property that a person owned who lived next to him. And Jezebel said to Ahab, what's wrong with you? Aren't you the king of Israel? I'll take care of that guy. And she did. She had him killed. In that same spirit, this woman, Herodias, is another Jezebel who convinces her husband that this prophet of God needs to be killed. It was her promptings that caused Herod to put John the Baptist into prison. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist, at least not initially. In fact, he was so afraid of the people because they thought of him as a prophet, which we are about to read, that he did not dare to do so. But because of what Herodias arranges, the deed was done. And this is how the deed came into being. Verse 5 says, And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias, who's not named here, but Josephus names her, Salome, she danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother Herodias, said to, John, or said to Herod, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter, right now, here. Right this very moment. Do it now. Bring his head on a dish. Pleasant thought, isn't it? And the king was sorry. Exceeding sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. He had an issue. Pride. He had made an oath. Whatever you want, even up to half of my kingdom, I will give it. She danced before him. We're not sure of the lewdness involved, but there probably was some degree of, well, wantonness. 
in her dance, excited Herod, and Herodias was very well aware of what touched his hot button, if you will. So verse 10 says, So he went, he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. Now I started out this portion of this reading of the scripture by saying that there has been rejection of Jesus by the Pharisees and the scribes, by his home, family, and town. And now there is rejection by the world of not only Jesus, but of his messengers and the message that the messenger brought. John had told Herod, repent. Jesus had told those who would listen to him, repent. John told all of the Pharisees, all of the scribes who came to him to find out who he was and what he was doing, repent. The majority of them wouldn't listen. The majority of them made bad choices, wrong choices. And Herod here makes a very wrong choice. He follows his flesh instead of his heart. And so it is with anyone who would reject Jesus Christ, who would reject the words that Jesus has spoken, who would reject the words of his messengers that he sends. They come to the wrong conclusions because of their rejection of the truth. When Jesus said, the word of God is indeed truth. And he also said, that truth will set you free. It could have set Herod free. It could have set Herodias free. It can set you and I free if we have chosen to believe it. John's disciples took the body and buried it. And then they went and told Jesus. It says in verse 13, when his disciples came and took away the body, he buried it and went and told Jesus. And then in verse 13 it says, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And I'll stop there at the first part of verse 13. To make note of the fact that Jesus, having heard of John's death, having heard of what Herod had assumed about Jesus, it became a turning point for Jesus to now move away from that ministry that he had been doing with regard to the multitudes. And from this point on, for the most part, we will see Jesus ministering to his disciples, teaching them of the things that they needed to know so that they could eventually go forth and proclaim the truths that he had been conveying to them all these many months. It's now approaching the last year of Jesus' ministry. He's going to go from here. He's crossed now the sea over to the northeast region, a quiet place. Well, for a season it's quiet. But he's away from his hometown of Galilee, or in Galilee of Capernaum, home of Nazareth, no longer there. No record of his going back to either of those places. He'll go from there northwestward to Tyre and minister to people there. He'll come back down on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern side of the Jordan River to Jericho. He won't ever again go through Galilee. He's going to cross the river from Jericho to Jerusalem. 
and his last days of ministry will be there in the city of Jerusalem. He's finished his public ministry to a certain extent. There will be occasions where there will be many gathered around to listen to him teach, but nowhere near what it was like the first year and a half or so of his ministry. Matthew is recording for us a transition in Jesus' willingness to proclaim who he is. If they haven't believed yet, and perhaps they never will, that still is an issue for people in the world today. If they haven't believed yet, Will they? It's between them and God. My personal belief is that everyone who still has breath can indeed come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, for the saving of their souls. But once you take that final breath, you exhale for the last time, you will not inhale once again because your body does not accommodate such things. You are dead. But your spirit, your soul, is not. While your body is alive is the only time that God allows for you to take advantage of what He has to offer. Simple, true. That's why He says today is a day of your salvation. Everyone who knows that, you're born again, Tell others that are not before it's too late. If there's anyone here who does not know these truths to be so and believing in their own heart that Christ was indeed raised from the dead for forgiveness of your sins and mine, today is a day of salvation. Don't let it pass. You don't know that you have tomorrow.